0: Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Carrie Shale. But on the digital Bob phone, she's our guest, NPR music critic, Ann Powers.
1: A saxophone someplace far off played as she was walking on by the arcade. As the light busts through a beat up shade where he was waking up, she dropped a coin into the cup of a blind man at the gate and forgot about a simple twist of fate. He woke up, the room was bare, he didn't see her anywhere. He told himself he didn't care, pushed the window open wide, felt an emptiness inside to which he just could not relate, brought on by a simple twist of fate. He hears the ticking of the clocks and walks along with a pair of the tocks. hunts her down by the waterfront docks where the sailors all come in. Maybe she'll pick him out again. How long must he wait? One more time for a simple twist of fate. People tell me it's a sin to know and feel too much within. I still believe she was my twin, but I lost the ring. She was born in spring, but I was born too late. Blame it on a simple twist of fate.
0: Gorgeous, thank you,
1: Anne.
0: (laughs) I've got to say, I I just love parrot that talks. That always there's, there's a joke. You know, even the most yeah. serious, beautiful song has a little joke. To me, that's a very absolutely funny joke. It's, a,
1: it's a joke. But you know, it's funny because with Dylan, it's all every joke has another meaning, and every laugh opens a window. That's a terrible mixed metaphor. Bob Dylan <laughs> would criticize my poeticism there, but you know, the idea of the parrot that talks, it's like. It connects with the whole history and legacy of Dylan as someone who says that the culture speaks through him, you know, someone who he is his own parrot that talks. And I think in the song Simple Twist of Fate, one of his most personal songs from his arguably one of his most personal albums, but on the Tracks, he's, you know, trying to be more direct. But still, as you're saying, he he enters into that realm of the poetic almost uh, against his own will.
0: So why did you choose the song?
1: I love Blood on the Tracks. And, you know, when I was a kid in high school, that was the album that really made me appreciate Bob Dylan. Uh, my very good friend was in love with the redhead. And uh, he felt that Blood on the Tracks had been written for him and her. Not me. I am also a redhead. But <laughs> <laughs> and and so my, my best friend in high school, uh, he turned me on to Bob by giving me this record. And I think it is... An album that appeals to anyone, even if you're not into kind of the more high-minded side of Dylan, or say even the political side of Dylan, or the um, old weird America side of Dylan. Here's an album that is about relationships and about one specific relationship. I also um, currently have been working a lot on. I'm writing uh, a book about Joni Mitchell, and oh. um, this album was inspired by her album Blue some think. And Bob has intimated at times that the song Tangled Up in Blue is called Tangled Up in Blue because he was tangled up in blue while writing Blood on the Tracks. So those are a couple reasons.
0: Great, great reasons. I didn't know that. I didn't know that Bob...
1: Yeah, well, you know, that's the thing about the Martin Scorsese Rolling Thunder uh, documentary that really stuck with so many people is that scene when Mm -hmm. Joni, you know, she's joined the tour and she's playing Coyote for them for the first time, Mm -hmm. but from her masterwork, a 1975 Sajira, Mm -hmm. you know, Dylan is sitting there trying to like figure out what the (laughs) hell is going on. Like how, what is, how is she playing? You know, how are her fingers moving on that guitar? What are these amazing words coming out of her mouth? And she's just blowing everybody in the room away. As she does, you know, just by being Joni. <laughs>
0: well, as we're just, as we're discussing Joni, we are Joni fans, and we don't talk about her really enough on the podcast. It is a Bob podcast. But <laughs> I, I read somewhere when I was looking you up on the interweb a story about how you were giving a paper and oh, Joni yeah. Mitchell was sitting in the front row. Can you yeah. uh, remind me of that? Remind us of that?
1: Many years ago, um, Dan Levitin, who writes about, um, he wrote that book. This is your brain on music. He's a neuroscientist and. Mm-hmm. He invited me to a conference at McGill University. They were giving Joni an honorary degree. And uh, this was actually just months after my daughter had been was born and sh- and we adopted her at birth. and it was my first time away from her. And I flew from Seattle where I was living at the time to McGill and and Montreal, I uh, yeah in Montreal sorry and I um had total jet lag like I was not equipped and I didn't have the right chemicals to help me <laughs> get to sleep that night so I was on like hardly any sleep and I went to this conference and and Joni was there and she was there with her daughter who um she was you know probably yeah. know the story she entrusted her daughter for adoption at birth and they were reunited years later anyway she and Kaloran were there. So I was kind of a wreck and I, I made it through the conference. Our session was the last of the day. It was me, the critic, Greg Tate, the uh, performance artist and conceptual artist, John Kelly. And we were all giving uh, different kind of perspectives on Joni's career. And, you know, Greg gave this paper about Joni is like so in touch with black culture. Greg is like a titan of black American criticism. And then John, who is a good friend of Joni, you know, so everyone is like singing her praises and everything. And I had written this very personal paper on Blue and it was structured around every song on Blue. And as you probably know, the song Little Green is about um, her daughter, Kaloran, who she had named Kelly and trusting her for adoption. So when I read that passage, I mentioned my daughter who we had, um, you know, we have an open adoption with her birth mother. We know her birth mother. And I, I started crying because, you know, I was away from my daughter. Plus I was just completely out of it. <laughs> you know, I was so tired and the pressure of having Joni right in the front row. And so I'm, I'm like crying and I'm losing it a little. And suddenly I hear this voice from the front row. You can do it. You can do it. And I'm like, Oh my God. <laughs> That's Joni Mitchell, like being my mom there for a minute, you know. And and I mean, she, I, she was it was such a sweet gesture. But of course, I was completely mortified. You can imagine, you know. But I, I got through the paper. So, <laughs> and then later, I was like, I avoided her at the reception, which I regret. I wish I'd, oh. I wish I had thanked her instead. I was embarrassed, you know. But and it, it, with the wisdom of time, I would, I thank her yeah, now. <laughs>
2: We
0: just love hearing about Joni because we just <laughs> we think she's on an equal plane to to Bob and
1: uh, I'm glad to hear you say that. That's you know, I think and, the world so has is come she, around to that. Yeah, no, oh she <laughs> definitely does. That's she I think she's Bob, above Bob, really. Well, I think she thinks Bob is one of her few her few peers. Bob, mm. Picasso, Lettercombe. There are a few, not very many.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, sh- should we just um, maybe talk a little bit about the paper that you wrote that was published in uh, The World of Bob Dylan by yes. Cambridge University Press, but it was also a talk that you gave, I think, at, in Tulsa. Yes, um, yes. It's called Gender and Sexuality, Bob Dylan's Body.
1: Well, when Sean Latham invited me to give this talk, and it was a keynote talk at, at the World of Bob Dylan conference, uh, which was the conference uh, celebrating the birth of this wonderful amazing center for the study of Bob Dylan and popular music uh, in Tulsa. I thought, okay, this is going to be a real opportunity to talk to people I don't always get to talk to, because Bob Dylan fans, as all of you listeners out there in Dylan land, you know, it's a particular group of extremely educated, erudite, intellectually ambitious, and uh, highly competitive thinkers about Bob Dylan. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know? So I thought, okay, here I am walking into this group. I'm not, uh, I play a Dylanologist a little bit occasionally. Like, you know, in my work, I've written a lot about Bob Dylan over the many years of my career. However, I am not a full fledged Dylanologist and I would never pretend to have the knowledge that y'all have. You know, it's just, I'm not a specialist the way that the true Dylan devotees are. So, I'm thinking, okay, I'm not going to be able to like go in there and dazzle them with my the minutiae in my mind about Dylan and what he did on like you know September 14th, 1967. I don't even know if that's a real date, but you get my point. <laughs> also, I, you know, write a lot about gender and sexuality in my work. It's, I guess you call it my specialty, and this is a pretty neglected area in Bob Dylan's studies, if we want to call Mm. it that. And it's, it's not completely neglected. Barbara O'Dare uh, wrote a great essay about it many years ago. You know, there's others who've written about it. And, and of course, like Susie Rodolo wrote an amazing book about her time with Bob that deals with a lot of this stuff. But I thought, okay, what can I do that's going to make me the most uncomfortable in this room of like mostly men <laughs> who know everything about Bob Dylan. I'll talk about Bob Dylan's body. I guess I like a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I was trying to fill a in all seriousness. I was kind of trying to fill a gap, but also I was like responding, I guess, to my own call, my own interest in um, Dylan, not only as this great brain and that's kind of how the essay starts out, you know, talking about his enormous his enormous head, his enormous brain, the Milton Glaser poster, right? you know, the yes. very famous image mm. of Dylan with his hair electric. You know, I wanted to say, okay, what's below the neck? Because we never think about that. We never talk about that. And I, I did it sort of as a provocation and a tease, but a tease to the audience to so like, hey, try thinking in this way. But once I started getting into it, I found this like, a fascinating kind of weave of threads moving through his work, where he does express desire, he does express physicality in his work, and I it was great to kind of like unravel that over time or figure out where that goes.
0: Well, it's great. It's a great paper, and I was I was most struck at the beginning by now. You say Rotolo.
1: Oh, yeah, I'd say oh, I yes. always sunday <laughs> I think it's Rotolo, but
0: <laughs> well, I'll say I'll say Rotolo for, for for now. But you talk about that <laughs> if photo. I'm saying that... it
1: wrong. I'm sorry. i this no, is what, you I've know I'm going to say never... as an NPR as working for NPR for almost ten years now. You just pulled a Bob Boylan on me, my friend, because this always happens to me when I'm recording. <laughs> all songs considered with Bob, the founder of NPR Music, and all, and all songs considered. He's like, I think you pronounced that wrong yeah you know, I just I live in a in a one room here like you know I don't go outside I only read books no I'm kidding, but you know how it is like no but I have hungry. no idea
0: myself <laughs> I thought I thought I was wrong. I just thought I' looking Lowe. at it
1: anyway, <laughs> Well I'm gonna say know. my agent is her was her agent on that book and she pronounces it wrote Lowe, so
0: Oh, great. Well, then it's Rodolo <laughs> from now on. It's definitely Rodolo. So the, the little paragraph that you wrote about Dylan wearing his buddy Holly glasses and leaning oh, yeah, back yeah, yeah. into Susie yeah. Rodolo and yeah. with his arms over. Uh, Where I and, call and them over, adorable,
1: adorable you lesbians. You call them an, an adorable, adorable <laughs> lesbian couple.
0: And I looked at that picture and I thought it's totally <laughs> you totally nailed it because, you, but you're making the point that that is, I think, is it Soft Bob, the yeah, first bob yeah. the first body that uh, that he had, or the, his body of work as well. You're talking about,
1: yes, you? completely. Well, you know, I mean, there's Bob Dylan, the folk singer, the first recordings, you know, where he's not, it's not his own work, and then the, the kind of political work that he's doing, where he's already speaking in other voices. I wouldn't count that necessarily as part of Soft Bob, but once he gets into the songs that are from that are not topical in the same way. You see a lot of vulnerability, boyishness, kind of an unformed. Mm. He is presenting himself as unformed, and his image at the time was very much that way. You know, very boyish. He called himself um, a baggy elephant uh, mm. in comparison to Joan Baez, who, after he and Sue's broke up, you know, became his partner in everything. And Joan Baez, this kind of queen. You know, she was a formidable force and a very powerful, charismatic star. She was on the cover of Time Mm -hmm. magazine and she became Bob's mentor as well as his lover and friend. And, you know, he's just a shambolic. You've watched those scenes where she kind of ushers him out on stage Mm -hmm. and they sing together. And he he really is very floppy (laughs) in his persona at the time. Nothing is sharpened things get a little sharper once he goes to England. Yeah. But the soft Bob is the first Bob that we know personally.
2: Well, that occurred yeah. to me as well. When you were saying that, when um, you're quoting Joan Byers, when she was saying that initially she wanted to mother Dylan because he was so fragile. Yes. And then I'd start yes. to think, yeah, when you get, when he gets to England in May 65, he's like a, a teenager who wants to leave home. And he's not oh my God. He's not playing, he's not <laughs> treating her like that anymore.
1: It's, no, you know. it's and it's brutal. I mean, I remember yeah. the first time I saw I Don't Look Back and I was just... You know, simultaneously, of course, entranced by by this charismatic star who's emerging, this completely attitudinal young guy. And I mm-hmm. saw that movie, I think, when I was in college. So, you know, that it really attracted me. But then just <laughs> horrified at the way he treats her, you know, in that film yeah. where she's kind of like hanging around and... You know, he's already with Sarah. That's not on screen, but but he's rejecting Joan, and it's it's quite mm-hmm. it's quite a demonstration of. But, I mean, is it misogynistic uh, the way he treats her? It certainly is uh, misogynistic. <laughs> Put Joan, <laughs> oh. in where the gin is misogynistic, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's, it, yeah. it's cruelty yeah. above and beyond. And I think one interesting thing to think about that. Uh, with Dylan is someone who's always aware of his image and particularly in that film where you have the kind of you know very neo-realist you know feeling of the film but he's always aware of the camera being on him and I think he's he's taking cues at that time from English rock stars who honestly especially the Stones kind of treat their women in a similar way at that time right so you have if Mick Jagger is a big model for Bob Dylan at the time. And I know everyone talks about John Lennon and their connection with the Beatles, but Mm. think about the stones too. And Brian Jones, I mean, Mick Jagger was the King of like, I will toss you away, little girl. You know, that was, that was all his early songs are full of that. I mean, you know, I'm seeing a lot of that in that moment with Dylan and, you know, he's equally dismissive of Donovan, who is sort of like the soft boy. Bob doesn't want to be anymore.
2: So I think also, I mean, now that I think about it, it's not just Dylan who's being misogynistic towards Joan Byers and Don't Look Back, but there's a kind of male gang of Dylan, oh, yeah. Bobby Newworth, Alan yeah. Price, and DA Pennebaker, because the way yeah. she exits from that film, she almost exits from that film because she's been pressured out. And yes. that last shot of her going out the door, it's I mean, it's it's quite nasty. And it is yes. quite male and it is quite misogynistic, I think.
0: Yes. You know what always I, amazes me is that Bob, you know, gets back with her a number of times over the years to yes. perform and that she gets back with Bob. Oh, yeah. As well. well. And just they're, they're singing together, you know, in, in Rolling Thunder, just watching them singing together is, is great because it's so multi layered. It's so yes. dangerous. Every yes. moment of it is sort of dangerous, even when they're supposed to be like, well, there's never really a moment, is there, where they're sort of buddies again. Um,
2: well, there's that guarded scene in, in Rolling Thunder and, and Slash, Ronaldo and Clara, when she's saying, you went and America. got married. You know, and, yeah. he's, and he's saying, thought, will fuck you up, and all that <laughs> bit. And it's, that kind of has the air of estranged friends, doesn't it?
1: Yes. I mean, I think that she's she's talked about how they, you know, it's not like they were constantly in touch, but they were inconsistently, but forever more in touch, I think. And they're just they're just connected. I mean, I feel like they are artistic sister, brother, twins in a way. So he couldn't give that up. Plus, you know, he's a player. He's going to have more than one, you know? So <laughs> the Rolling Thunder stuff, is it, it's hilarious to me how he staged these scenes. Uh, and even Sam Shepard in the Rolling Thunder Diary writes about the craziness of those scenes with with Sarah and Joan. And, you know, Bob's like, being literally torn asunder by the two of them—well, every man's dream, right, guys? <laughs> you know who's directing yeah. this movie? <laughs>
0: yes. well, That's—is that the period that you call? Uh, is it Naked Bob? Or I think
1: that's the Star uh, Body, but yeah, that's where he gets naked because he's like showing off his—you know—he's—he's he's in that kind of scarfy. Uh, show off my chest a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm, and he is, I, I mean, the Rolling Thunder footage, you see more of his body than you normally do. There is a, I included in my multimedia show with a uh, talk, you know, an image of him from Woodstock, I think, where he's like jumping into a pool. So it's not like we've oh, never yeah. seen in, in swim trunks, mm-hmm. but so it's not like we've never seen his body. But when you think about like the mod body of Bob Dylan mm-hmm. in the, that was very sort of influenced by I think the early stones, it's very buttoned up, you know, it's like
2: mm-hmm.
1: collar all the way, you know, buttoned up all the way to the neck. But then in, it's the seventies, man, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> everybody's getting loose and he's, it's interesting because in during that period he starts working with women and collaborating with women more on Rolling Thunder. Joni joins the tour, um, Roberta Flack played a date. Scarlett Rivera is a huge part of that period. And then Desire and Emmy Lou, I mean to mm-hmm. me, I have always loved that record. And I, what I love the most about it is the way that Emmy Lou Harris's voice and her her the intensity of her singing is just pushing him to do things with his voice that he's never tried to do yeah. before. Sometimes to a fault, one might say. But I enjoy it.
2: <laughs> oh, me too. And we had Rob Stoner on this this podcast last year, and he was, you know, reminding us that most of Emily Harris's contribution to that album is one session, and it's about seventy percent of the album, Isn't that and most crazy? of them are early takes. And on one of them, she's saying, "I fucked it up." She's not happy with it. She's feeling her way around the notes, but it's absolute gold.
1: It's totally. I mean, they, it, she. There's no harmony singer, there's no duet partner like Emmylou. I mean, that's oh, just no. like her work with Graham Parsons, obviously, yeah. which, you know, really rocketed her to stardom and remains legendary. But then uh, her more recent work, and even, I guess, since the 80s with Rodney Crowell, I think she mm-hmm. remains just this incredible. And and let's not forget her work in Trio with Dolly yeah. and Linda Ronstadt. Mm-hmm. Yep, she's yep. just a master at catching the vibe of who she's with and And not just like floating along with that vibe, but then pushing the edge of her partner so that whoever she's singing with goes to that next place. And that's what happens Mm. with Dylan, I think, on that record.
2: And ironically, she was all set to be a Joan Baez clone, and then she met Grant Parsons, heard some George Jones, (laughs) you know, and that that was that. Actually,
0: speaking of of which, I was reading your excellent book, Good Booty, um, about (laughs) love and sex uh, in uh, American music. And so I was just reading it, and I I paid particular attention to the 60s, 70s, because that's sort of, you know, a place where I remain fixated in a lot of ways. And I read uh, about Janis Joplin. Yes. having a Joan Baez voice yes. that she never got to use
1: yes. back it's, in her,
0: I guess she was, you know, a folkie strumming away. And then she started hanging around with the electric boys yes. of Big Brother and uh, couldn't be heard right. singing like Joan Baez.
1: Yeah. And I thought that um, was really It's Well, you know, she was. She started on the coffeehouse circuit in Austin and at Threadgills. And um, when she came out to California... Uh, she did get in with this crowd that was playing super loud. I think we forget, you know, uh, what that music sounded like, early psychedelic music, how much it was like punk in a lot of ways, and and honestly how much it was like the Velvet Underground. But, you know, I mean, Lou Reed, RIP, would probably, you know, object to me saying this, but there's a kind of cacophony in those early bands like Big Brother, Moby Grape, bands like that, Jefferson Airplane. That, well, um, Jefferson
0: Airplane were very acoustic when they started, weren't they? At least there's quite a bit of when, acoustic on the first album.
1: They were when they started, but then it just gets yeah. kind of crazy. <laughs> and Big Brother, especially, I mean, they were just bashing away at their instruments. So she, but she also was very interested in the blues and was trying to figure out how to, how to make that what she heard in the blues her own, like how to transubstantiate the blues, you know, and through her mm. own voice. I was just uh, rereading this amazing essay by Margot Jefferson that uh, is a classic essay. It's called Ripping Off Black Music. Do you know that essay? Um, no. And it's one of the first accounts from 1973 about how white artists appropriate black music. It's like very intense. Margot Jefferson is a great American critic. She is black the entire history of American music, she cites the appropriation that goes on from Elvis to everyone else. Right. Um, she ends her essay with Janice, and she says, the thing about Janice is she went through that appropriation and ended up herself. But she also died that death, you know. So you have to ask, what was the cost? I I'm not sure if I if I believe that Janice died for her music or because of her music. I think her death was a tragic accident in many ways. But mm. it is arguable that the role that she had to play in in the culture, that that the industry, music industry and the culture kind of slotted her into as this excessive woman, you know, supported or made necessary her her addictive tendencies, you know, mm. and that mm contributed to her death. I say similar things about both Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison as you know like in yeah. in every case these artists were were cast as as liberators, you know, liberating us from You know, Americans from racist divides, you know, Hendrix transcending race, supposedly, or Jim Morrison, like acting out this caricature of masculinity that supposedly broke on through to the other side of it. But in every case, they were caught in the trap of racism mm. and sexism and ultimately couldn't transcend and i think that's the tragedy of all three of those figures.
0: Yeah, i think it's very interesting to hear. you do um in good booty bob doesn't doesn't show up a, a lot and i'm kind of interested in that but one of the times that he does show up is you compare uh, him and jimmy hendrix
1: yeah and yes.
0: you say actually that although you don't use the word jufro i think you say <laughs> i can't remember what you say but it is yeah. a jufro that yeah. he had and that, yeah. that jimmy hendrix took his afro yeah. yes. from bob's jufro which i thought really did that happen but of course yeah. it was
2: there before Jimmy's. Yeah. So, yes. As, as Roger this, Waters later called it, the obligatory Hendrix perm, you know, and I think he, well, it's, it's Dylan really. with, I mean, Eric Clapton had a bit yeah, in Eric cream, Clapton, didn't he, for a while?
0: The, but, but it's
2: Dylan. And when you talk about Dylan's head, uh, you know, before his body really kind of played a part, it's the head, it's the brain, it's that massive, frizzy head, isn't it? That's so kind of encapsulating and entrancing.
1: Yes. No, definitely. I mean, the, uh, that's one of the fun things about looking back at the 60s and 70s too is the, way that the artists were collaborating with photographers and, uh, album designers. And, you know, now, you know, we kind of live in the multimedia age and we have artists that are constantly giving us images via the internet, but then it was these collaborations with these, these image makers and still photography that really, you know, made the image. And I think you see that with Dylan a lot. I think you see that with Hendrix too, and, you know, one thing I want to say about Hendrix's look is, um, I don't know if y'all have ever heard of this woman named Devin Wilson, but I want to recommend a great book by Maureen Mann that came out this year called Black Diamond Queens that recasts the history of rock and roll through the, by recentering black women. And she has a chapter on women who were black women who were companions and of rock stars. So Devin Wilson was one. And she and Hendrix were together in the very early years before he came to London in New York. And she was a big contributor to his image. And I think she was looking at I mean, you know, she's in New York. So yeah. she's probably seeing seeing Dylan and like seeing what a style icon he was at that time and yeah. saying, Hey Jimmy, you know, grow your hair out a little bit. <laughs> <laughs>
0: because yeah, because they wanted to put him into mohair suits, didn't they? I think Chas yeah. Chandler wanted him to get into a mohair suit. And he yeah.
1: said uh... Yeah, well he and that was like you know, again, uh, managers were so important, just like the photographers, you know, just like with Dylan, Daniel Kramer, his images of Dylan were so important, you know, that managers also, I mean, those are the important people that shaped the image of these stars. So, but uh, but I
0: was speaking of of important women. I was also you, you made a lot of really interesting points about Janice and Jimmy, and one of yeah, them was that uh, that Janice had long standing relationships. A couple of them with with women, longer standing yes. relationships than she had with men. Yes, and that yeah. that back then in that time when everything was uh, letting it all, everybody was letting it all hang out and being yeah. very groovy. You couldn't really properly be gay if you yes. were that way inclined.
1: It's true, and I was just, you know turning that back to Dylan like thinking about the way he talks about sexuality in his in his music which which one of the points of Bob Dylan's body essay is that he does talk about sexuality in his music although he doesn't talk about his own body or what he looks like very often you're not going to get a wap <laughs> there's no wet anything dylan (laughs) you're not gonna get a megan the stallion moment with dylan but what you do get is like these expressions of desire there's an album called desire these expressions of hunger but it all is a very so a lot of longing a lot of kind of like drive toward women a lot of assertion of mastery
0: i want you so i want
1: you so bad exactly so bad but, 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 um, but there's not
0: there isn't much more than that is there or there's tons of subtext isn't there well, but you th- what i
1: was going to say is like yeah. connecting with your point about queerness is like can do, i mean a question i ask is like can we queer dylan and uh, my jury's still out on that you know i i mean i think you know i make the comparison of the soft dylan and and as you said like a lesbian couple but his lyrics are pretty conventionally patriarchal, you know, and pretty conventionally straight and heteronormative. So, you know, when I was, when I was a kid, I wrote the lyrics to love minus zero, no limit on an, on the back of an envelope. And I put it in this hurricane glass I had that my mom had brought back from Uh, Pat O'Brien's the famous bar in New Orleans, and I kept that on my dresser for years, you know, and I just would pull it out sometimes and look at it. And to me, that was like, the ideal expression of what a woman should be like, this is what Bob Dylan wants in a woman, you know, and I, I thought about reading those lyrics today, but I wrestle with them now because they Mm. are so they're beautiful. I mean, they're truly beautiful. You know, uh, a bird uh, with a broken wing at the window, mm. you know, et cetera. But it's also like a very silent, kind of passive, receptive image of a woman. And that's not who I, you know, want to be. And that's not who I think, uh, th- that's not what I want uh, women to want to be. <laughs> When they, you know, when they fall in love with an artist, like, Mm, and, and I was looking through like Sad Eyed Lady of the Lowlands or Sarah, you know, so these beautiful love songs he writes. And again, it's still like, you know, he calls... In Sarah, he calls Sarah a virgin, and you know, mystical wife. That's even good. though she's like yeah. had how many of his kids by then, you know, <laughs> she's no virgin, Bob. Come on, yeah.
2: but also, <laughs> she was I mean,
1: divorced when you, she, you met her. <laughs> it always <laughs> you know?
2: it interests me that I'm Blood on the Tracks. You know, when he's talking about his his relationships, he says mine have been like Valens and Rambo. Now that is not. Yes. If we're talking about queerness, that that is not a patriarchal yeah. image.
1: I think that Blood on the Tracks is the beginning, and maybe. It's a singular case, but it's the beginning of him opening up to this other way of thinking about yeah. women and, and thinking about relationships as more equal, and he's been humbled, you know, and there's a kind of humility in that. Now he goes right back, you know, by desire. He's like, we're waxing, we're waxing macho again. But then when to he enters into the was. Christian phase, it's interesting because yeah. yeah. there's a relationship with, with God that's like complicated and he's being vulnerable again. And then jump ahead by the time we get to Time Out of Mind. And he's very vulnerable in those songs. You know, like in a song like Lovesick, he's extremely vulnerable. So I'm not, you know, the Verlaine and Rambo lyric has always puzzled me in some way.
2: Uh, Do you know the play Total Eclipse by Christopher Hampson?
1: No. That tells the story
2: of Verlaine and Rambo. And I think it's mid-70s. I I wonder if Dylan was aware of that because that basically tells – their lives in a series of scenes, you know, ah. arguments basically between those two, and he's i don't know, maybe, maybe he's alluding to the drama of his life as well as to to that.
1: Well, yeah, maybe, but you know, also, I just want to—I'm going to yeah. interrupt you and say, don't forget Alan Ginsberg too. Like huge influence yeah. on him, yeah, yeah. and sure. you know, he did have there were you know, I can't find it right now, but in my essay, there's another Paul. What was his name? Folk singer it was big. Yeah, oh, yeah, Clayton. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So then he's he was. Okay, mm. so I mean, it I don't know how deep we can go into like the personal. We don't know really biographically. Well, we do know that Ginsburg
0: and and Dylan were very very close. Yes, yeah, yeah. very close. And,
1: yeah,
0: yeah. And I mean, and I mean, cool. as a, more of a mentor. It started out as a mentor,
1: yeah, uh, yeah,
0: acolyte thing, and then yeah. became a, Ginsburg. Just became his biggest. Band, didn't yeah, they?
1: yeah, exactly, yeah. and so there. But he also being...
0: learned a lot about Ginsburg's lifestyle, I should think.
1: Oh yes, um, I'm sure. You know,
0: because yeah. he hung out with those guys, and they were yeah, I mean, which was know. I think very you know very unusual at the time. For it was such a macho, basic scene. You know, the '60s was still pretty mm-hmm. macho, even if you were soft-bodied Bob. To <laughs> you know to be to be friends with you know a, a whole coterie really of of you know gay people and and, yeah. and taking things. You know, from them, cultural things and and references that I think many myth references that made it into the songs.
1: I think we're gaining more knowledge of this now, as all, as other you know, as people are speaking their stories. It's similar to a story that I really want to help tell at some point. That people like Dom Flemons are telling which is the story of black folk singers and how influential they were on the early part of Bob's career, you know, particularly someone like Len Chandler, who was like one of his best friends early on in New York. And like, I got to meet Len a couple of years ago. And man, that guy's stories, you know, like driving Bob to meet Woody Guthrie, like being the guy who drove Bob, you know, or being at the March on Washington with him. And this guy is not very written into the story at all Hmm. and and there were others on the scene you know odetta as like his initial influence so i think that we're in a moment where all of these stories are emerging and maybe paul clayton's story maybe the they'll be is there a good book on bob and alan because that would be a great subject for a book you know somebody get out there write that uh... book because we need <laughs> another Bob Dylan book because it's not like yeah, there are like of them. Are,
2: are there <laughs> any Absolutely. coming out this let's, year, I let's wonder? Let's agree to yeah. make the
0: 81st birthday the, um, the Ginsburg Dylan book. Yes! Would you, would Somebody you, out there.
2: Would you say, Anne, that, I mean, talking about, about queerness and things, would you say that Dylan is rock music's first Andra Jean? Mm. I mean, it's, that, I always thought that kind of mid-60s, blonde-on-blonde era, dandy, harlequin kind of plugs straight into into Bowie. But well, then you, I... in, you and in your piece, you you talk about the the androgynous era before that, the the puppy fat lesbian couple era, <laughs> <laughs> that we should call it.
1: I entertained your thought for a moment and then the ghosts of little Richard ran up of behind course, me and still That's my place. You get out of yeah. my place right now. That's right.
2: So, You're in a good sorry. booty, absolutely. <laughs>
1: uh, you know, There's- I think I think we had I mean an Elvis too was very androgynous. You know, and Grill Marcus had really like Mystery Train had opened my eyes to like thinking about music in these different ways and through mythologies and stuff. And there was an essay in this collection that talked about Elvis as a woodland fawn, a mythical creature. And I, it just went ding, ding, ding in my head of like, Oh yeah. Elvis is this kind of like delicate creature, even though he's also very sexy. And, you know, he was always so soft and Bobby Ann Mason writes about this too. in her great little book on Elvis that, you know, he was a mama's boy and he Mm -hmm. had that softness about him. And there's this, There's a softness to Southern men sometimes, too, I think, Mm. Uh, white American Southern men. Yeah, so I think androgyny was always there. But Dylan, I don't know, he takes it to a different place for sure. You know,
0: mm-hmm. speaking, speaking of taking things to a different place, there's one thing you said about Lay Lady Lay, just to sort of go into a, another period that we haven't talked about, yeah. like Nashville period. Yeah. And you call you call the song Dylan's successful entry into the soft rock soft porn sweepstakes, sweep <laughs> taking place on turn of the 70s FM radio.
1: <laughs> yes, one of my favorite. I mean, I've periods. heard the
0: Isaac Hayes version. Obviously, that <laughs> that really does take it there. But but to, to, I'm I'm interested though that because I never sort of heard it like that as a as a young teenage boy hearing it for the first time. I just thought it was a beautiful love song. But wow. uh yeah. We're, um go. Soft rock, soft porn. Go. Well, this
1: is something I write about in Good Booty and it was one of my favorite the one of the funnest areas to research. But you know, the early seventies when soft rock uh, came into vogue early mid 70s and it, it continued into the obviously all the way into the 80s yacht rock as it's called now at the same time hard rock was getting more like explicitly sexual too you had robert plant basically kind of like in a distant duet with donna summer with his the moaning and the groaning and all that's happening i theorized that this is all happening in part because of the rise of the mainstreaming of pornography. And the uh, this interesting thing that happens, which is like porn movies previous to this era had been stag films without soundtracks. Like there was just music. And so now you heard sex as well as saw sex when you went to see a porno. Right. So, and, and this is the moment when, Linda Lovelace, you know, all those movies are in Deep Throat. They're all in the theaters, and people are going to see them. Uh, mainstream American couples. I don't know what's happened over all y'all's side of the pond, but, you know, here, like, Mom and Dad, we're going to sneak out in the afternoon and go see The Devil and Miss Jones or whatever. So, so they're hearing sex. So you start to hear that in music. And what happens in soft rock is it becomes – it's not so much the moaning and groaning of hard rock and disco, but it's sort of these very – Uh, lovely, almost instructional songs about, (laughs) about having sex, you know, and the same thing happened in country, which is interesting. I think, you know, circling back to talking about blood on the tracks again, country music is the other big influence on that record. And he's spent time in Nashville, obviously working with the Nashville cats and, you know, meeting Nashville songwriters. And I think someone like Chris Christofferson was, you know, really making an impression on Dylan. So, you know, you had help me make it through the night. Take the ribbon from your hair. and Lay across my big dad, thinking, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I'm also thinking about, you know, Afternoon Delight and songs like that. So, you know, you have songs that are basically like, we are going to describe, we are just going to talk about the fact that we are having sex. It's not going to be metaphor or euphemism. Well, Afternoon Delight is a metaphor, but, but it's pretty out there. And that's how I always felt about Lay, Lay, Lay. Lay. It's like... Hmm. He's just laying it down, as you might say, as he's laying her down on the bed. But, you know, I was thinking about, the, I almost read those lyrics too, because I thought it would have been hilarious if I read those lyrics in this yeah. Victorian tone. But it could be a Chris Christofferson song.
2: Yeah. You know, just from, from the other side, just I'm thinking about instructional um, songs now. <laughs> have you heard Candy Staten doing a song called Do Your Duty?
1: oh yes oh, oh my god Do you, so what you're good. supposed to do
2: do what you know you got to do do your duty
1: i love okay. her oh, so much me oh too. my god me i love too. candy Staten. yeah so because that was the other i mean it was hap- certainly funk and, and soul and women you know women artists like candy or shaka khan i mean when i was mm. a kid uh, tell me something good by rufus was like the first song that i recognized was about sex i'm like tell me that you like it. What is it? What is it? You know, I mean, obviously (laughs) I figured out what it was. And thus, my speaking of
0: speaking watched. of it, I, I was looking for a Prince segue.
1: Oh, there we go!
0: <laughs> right there we go. Uh, just because he wrote a song called "It," uh, I believe, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, and uh, do yeah, do it all the time. It, it, yeah. it, and but you you have some sort of Prince project going. I've just been you know stalking you on the interweb, and I saw that oh, you said you went to Prince's house once. Or oh, that
1: was years ago. I interviewed Prince. It was like one of the high points of my life, and it continues to be a. Uh, one of my most popular articles I ever wrote. Right. And in fact, I'm working on a little BBC program that where in, which I sort of rem- reminisce about that and other uh, sort of my life journey with Prince's music. Cause Prince is like my, I don't, I was going to say he's my Dylan, but that's not true because Dylan is my Dylan, but he is an artist that I think has sort of defined and influenced my worldview as much as I definitely put Prince up there with uh, you too. I love you too. That was a very important band for me, especially as a young person. And and Madonna, you know, I, I have these artists that are so important to me. Maybe Polly Harvey is another one. But Prince, you know, here's something I think Prince and Dylan share. They create worlds, you know. They create worlds, they are world builders. I don't know if either of you are into sci-fi, but there's a lot of talk in sci-fi and fantasy about world building and how important that is. Like or you think about Game of Thrones, where every detail, every like stroke of the pen, like adds another detail in the world. And I think Dylan does that in his work, and I think that's something Prince does. And as a, you know, such a reader and a nerd, I think that's that's what I love the most about these artists. I can immerse in their world. Oh, Kate Bush is my other. How could I forget you, Kate? She's my <laughs> other world building artist that really defined kind of what I love about music, and I—they all, all have massive
2: artists. hair. All these people have massive hair: Prince, Little <laughs> Richard, Bob Dylan, well, Kate I Bush also
1: have massive hair. So.
2: <laughs> Actually, Joni never had
0: massive hair. I don't think I mean, she did no. go through a ringlet phase, didn't she? I think uh, she in the, the nineties, <laughs> eighties.
1: Inter- Joni, it's interesting because I wasn't. She was like. I always loved Joni, but it's only been in recent years that I've immersed myself in her work. And so mm. I kind of approached her. Uh, later in my life. And I'm I'm glad because I have less baggage about her, like in terms of my fandom for her. As a critic, I think I can see her work in it. I'm not going to say more clearly, but maybe more clearly. Like I don't have adolescent associations with her music the way I do with these other artists. Mm -hmm. But I will say something really immersing in Joni, and then going back to the Kate Bush albums that that made me completely obsessed with Kate Bush when I was like 18 Mm -hmm. years old. I can hear so much Joni on those records. And I never knew that. Like, I had never really spent that much time listening to the first two Joni records, um, Song to a Seagull, Mm -hmm. Um, for example. Kate, she just like, the singing is so similar. It's pretty, pretty wild. But then Kate finds her ground by the dreaming and becomes the magnificent goddess that she remains Mm. to this day.
0: Did you ever get a chance to ask Prince? About, I'm not sure what you were there to interview him about, but we know he was a huge Joni fan. Yeah. Did Did you ask him about Joni? Because I no, I, I... I
1: didn't. Because we were talking, we were that wasn't something we were talking about that mm-hmm. for that mm-hmm. particular interview. But yeah, he loved Joni. He he uh, recorded a, the best cover of a case of you I've ever heard. You know, they were in dialogue with each other. I, you know, they I think they knew each other a little bit. They were mutual admirers of each other. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it, I think what he loved about Joni was her musicality. You know, her, it's not so much, she's not a world builder like those other artists. She's more of a, a traveler. I think of her, I think of traveling as a great metaphor to describe what Joni does. She moves yeah. through the world and describes it and mm-hmm. has insight into it versus like, I am going to create a world that you are in. But musically, I think she and Prince share a lot. You know, they're endlessly inventive, endlessly curious, endlessly challenging the very song structures of pop. And I think mm. he heard that in, mm. in her music.
0: I, As I said, when we started out, I, I love his little jokes. And I, I, list, I was listening to uh, Dirt Road Blues today, so it came up on the shuffle. And I thought, that's actually, the music in it is funny. You know that that sort of um, the cheesy organ is come on, that's funny, and the guitar—they've got the guitars tuned to sound a bit like kazoo's. Yes, you know, (laughs) and to me, it's just uh, you know, it's another one of his miserable blues songs, but it's still (laughs) very funny.
1: Well, I don't want to completely attribute this to Bob's Jewishness, but I am in a Jewish family. My husband is Jewish, and our child has been raised Jewish, and you know, I think a great aspect of Jewish art is that it like weaves together humor and cosmic pondering and the, you know, deep thoughts. Uh, and those things are never separable. You know, I mean, there's always the, there's always the punchline, you know, there's always the joke. If you think about, I don't know, Philip Roth comes to mind, for example, you know, someone who is really on people's mind right now, there's been a new biography of him out, but yeah, this is just something or, I don't know Sarah Silverman. <laughs> I could grab a million people uh, examples. But I think Dylan's humor is is very Jewish in a way. you know, it has a there's a spiritual dimension to it and it's a little bit fatalistic, but it's also just like it's going for the laugh, you know it's it's both things at once. So. But I love that about Bob. There's not a song. I don't know if you could find a song, maybe Love Minus Zero, No Limit, where there isn't a joke. Um, you know, most songs, like you were talking about, Simple Twist of Fate at the beginning of this episode. There's that line about the pair that talks that makes us laugh. There's always a joke next to the heartbreak intertwined with the heartbreak.
0: Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded on Zencaster, Stuck Inside, Immobile.
2: Engineered by Mark Langley-Smith and produced by Robin Guise digital imaging by Finn guys music is by sam Hare. we're part of pantheon podcasts the music podcast network find us on twitter at is it rolling pod i
0: don't want to straight face you race or chase you track or trace you or disgrace you or displace you or define you or confine you all i really want to do is baby be friends with you